Before we begin our episode today, we want to provide a listener advisory. There are references to and general descriptions of sexual assault. Please listen with your care in mind. We have queer-specific resources to support you and or your loved ones on our website and in the show notes. Hey everyone. Well, something truly special has happened. Last week, this podcast, the one you are listening to right now, was nominated for a GLAAD Media Award for Outstanding Podcast. We were stunned and excited and disbelieving and now just feeling joy that GLAAD chose to uplift the guests, authors, and books we talk about on this show. LGBTQ fiction sales have been soaring in the United States for the past four years, and driving those sales have been stories about LGBTQ love. And it feels fitting, then, that today we'll be talking about a groundbreaking novel that mainstreamed queer love. And we're going to talk about its role in providing healing after trauma for our guest. Plus, later in the show, something unique, a special conversation with our executive producer, Jim Pounds. So for those who are new to the podcast, my name is J.P. Derbogosian. I'm your host. I'm an essayist, a Lambda Literary Fellow, and now a GLAAD Media Award nominee. And you're listening to This Queer Book Saved My Life. Chapter 3. I didn't choose to be gay, but... The other day, a friend and I were discussing the ridiculous notion that being gay is a choice rather than a biological disposition. He asked, quote, What man would choose to be gay? Being straight is so much easier. I thought about that for a moment. Is it? Knowing what I know now, I realize that if we did get to pick the team on which to play, I wouldn't hesitate to choose the team I am on. When you're gay, you're an outsider from day one, before you even admit it to yourself. You are outside society looking in. And that particular vantage point is not to be dismissed. This changes your outlook on everything. You don't buy the party line. You question convention. You can react instead of being the stoic straight guy. You accept all shades of gray in society with little to no judgment because you know that most societal misconceptions are just that, misconceptions. And we are listening to the essay, I Didn't Choose to Be Gay, but it's from the memoir Expletives Not Deleted by Leon Acord. It came out last year and the audiobook will be coming out this spring. Leon is our guest today and like so many queer creatives, he hails from the Midwest. I was born in Indiana. I grew up on a series of farms. Aspired to be an actor, although writing was something I always did and took for granted. My parents were always like, be a writer, don't be an actor. No, I had to try to be an actor. And I just recently, kind of as I'm getting older and the parts kind of thin out, I've been focusing more on writing. Leon created, wrote, and starred in the TV series Old Dogs and New Tricks on Amazon Prime Video. On stage, he has performed in numerous West Coast premieres at the New Conservatory Theatre Center, including shows Last Sunday in June and Thief River. What I love about Leon's story is how it was a bookstore that he found in high school that helped him connect to his queer identity. Most people in Indiana and in the rural rural Indiana in the late 70s, early 80s, kind of felt like they were the only gay person alive, which I kind of felt that way until late in my senior junior year. I discovered this bookstore called Little Professor Books in Kokomo, Indiana. They carried After Dark magazine, and I bought a couple issues, and it's like, oh my God, there's this whole gay world in New York, stage and literature, and I'm not alone. 
And what was the book that saved Leon's life? The queer book that saved my life is The Front Runner by Patricia Nell Warren. You know, they say it's the most celebrated gay love story. I wouldn't qualify it that way. I would just say it's one of the greatest love stories, period. The Front Runner by Patricia Nell Warren was published in 1974. It follows Harlan Brown, who is an athletic director. He meets Billy and they fall in love. Billy is a track star training for the Olympics. And when Billy takes up a teaching position, Harlan and he move in together and they have a commitment ceremony. Harlan goes on to coach Billy to the 1976 Olympics. The novel is important because it was the first novel to mainstream and be a bestseller featuring queer love. It tackles anti-queer discrimination in higher education. It is a positive gay love story, which was very rare in the 1970s, and it confronts homophobia in sports. This is a very basic synopsis, and obviously we'll get into much more detail. So here is my conversation with Leon. So, Leon, can you share a little bit about your life leading up to reading The Front Runner? Take me through that. The summer before my senior year, I took a theater, a two-week theater workshop at Indiana State University and became really good friends with this woman named Robin Hammer, who described she was a self-professed fag hag. <laughs> she used that word. I mean, it's so offensive now to say it. It's amazing how that we would just say it without feeling guilty back in the day. Anyway, we became really good friends. We kept in touch by letters and shared my whole coming out experience at the beginning of senior year. That New Year's Day, she was having what she called a happy hangover party and invited me down. This was in Indianapolis, which is about an hour and a half away from my house. And one of the guys at the party, let's call him Eric, he was making drinks. He was 6'3". He had bright red hair. He's actually an extra in Ghostbusters at the end. If you see the extra with the bright red hair, that's him. Robin invited him to spend the night. The two of them are on the floor and they start making out. I'm like, oh, okay. And Robin said, well, why don't you come down here and join us? So I did. The next day, actually, I was spending two nights at Robin's house. The next day he came over. We went to Rocky Horror Picture Show and we, we had a scheme. He's like, okay, after Robin goes to bed and her parents are asleep, I'm going to come back to her house and park in front of her house and just come out once everyone's asleep. So I did. Oh my God. <laughs> it was like a moment out of front runner. The first time I'd ever been with a guy, kissed a guy, made out with a guy in a car in the winter. It was probably 20 degrees outside. From that point, we wrote letters and called each other on the phone. He would come up. He would go and stay at Dee Dee's house and I would meet him there on weekends. I was so excited about the future, about being, <laughs> I wanted to be the gay Mary Richards. Anyway. <laughs> We moved to Indianapolis the day after high school graduation so I could spend the summer with my new boyfriend before he went to college in New York at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. Oh my gosh, that's my college. I'm an alum. I told you it would <laughs> come up in my story. Anyway, so uh, I moved to Indianapolis expecting the start of a great big gay life. I really wanted to be like the modern gay before AIDS hit. It really felt like we were on the verge of really breaking through to acceptance. Mm. And I really wanted to be a part of that and, and push it forward. So I moved to Indianapolis and um, I couldn't get a job. It was a horrible recession. Within a, just a few weeks, I was broke. One bright spot, I got cast in a small part in Little Abner at Footlight Musicals. One night coming home from rehearsal, I accepted a ride from a guy who pulled up on the street and uh, got in his car and was sexually assaulted. <gasps> As a result of that, I caught a minor STD 
but it was still an STD. Our apartment was robbed. Oh, my God. Um, so by the time fall came and my boyfriend was ready to go to New York, I felt depleted. I felt devastated. I felt kind of destroyed and so broke that I had to call my parents and say, um, can you come and collect me and can I move back home? And what I did, I just felt completely destroyed, not only just on a personal level because I couldn't get a job, I couldn't make any money. I just felt like all the feelings that I had about the gay community, about a gay future, about being part of this brave gay world that was starting to emerge, it just felt bogus to me. I want to take a break here to say that in this next section, we have a general description of sexual assault. If you'd like to skip past it, please fast forward to about the 13 minute and a half mark. And please know we have queer specific resources to support you and or your loved ones. They are on our website and in the show notes. The sexual assault, I'd never... I'd never told anyone, well, I certainly, you know, I told a couple of friends, I told my boyfriend, the STD, that was, that was awkward mm-hmm. because I didn't realize I had it until after I had had sex with the boyfriend. Mm. So then I had, you know, I had to drag him off to the clinic with me. Fortunately, he did not have it. Um, but anyway, the, the, the sexual assault, I it was funny when the uh, Brett Kavanaugh hearings were going on a few years ago, I actually got the nerve to tell my mom about it, that I was walking home from rehearsal. I was just exhausted because we had been rehearsing a dance number all, all evening. And I was at a corner taking a break. It was like a 10 block walk home. It was about 85 degrees, really humid. And um, as I'm standing there, this car pulls up and this dude says, you want a lift? Now I'm fresh off the farm a complete innocent, completely naive. I thought, well, how nice. Um, when I told my mom, you know, during the Kavanaugh hearing, she said, well, I, I don't judge you where you came from. It was, it was, it was commonplace to give someone a lift down the road, you know, when you live mm-hmm. in the country. That the sexual assault. And then like a week later coming home and finding our apartment had been robbed. Fortunately, they didn't find our rent money, which was stashed away in a closet. Um, not being able to get a job. By the end of those three months, I just, again, I just, I felt dirty. Mm-hmm. I felt used. I felt ashamed. And, you know, just six months earlier, I was so proud of being gay. I couldn't tell enough people that I was gay. And now I just, I wanted to hide. It was, mm-hmm. um, it was, a, it was, it was, it was a tough summer. It's still tough for me to talk about, even after all these years, even though I've kind of, you know, I don't have any PTSD from it, but it's still, uh, I hate to blame the victim, but I just, every time I think about it, I think, Leon, how could you have been so stupid to get into a stranger's car? Well, I don't want to, I can't tell you how to feel, but I kind of agree with your mom. Like, how would you know? Yeah. And, you know, even though I got into the guy's car, it didn't give him permission to have his way with me. No, no, absolutely not. You moved back home uh, from Indianapolis. Would you like to share how were you navigating this now? All the romanticism I had in senior, my senior year of high school was replaced by this cynicism. I was so angry, 
so defeated. I did a lot of reading while I was staying at my parents' house because I still couldn't find a job. A lot of reading. And I went back to my favorite bookstore, Little Professor Books, and I picked up The Front Runner. I had seen The Front Runner at bookstores before. It had a very provocative cover, the original paperback. I wanted to buy it, but I was always too embarrassed because, you know, taking a book with that kind of cover up to a cashier in Indiana, I just, I, I wasn't that. Wait, what was the cover? It's um, Harlan Brown, the coach, in a towel, like he just came out of the shower, and Billy Sive sitting on a bench putting on his tennis shoes while he's wearing like skimpy little shorts and a, a tank top. You know, it's not terribly overt by today's standards. Back then, it was like, oh my God, this is a gay book. <laughs> But anyway, Little Professor, you know, they sold After Dark. I felt if there's one safe place to buy this book, this is the place. So I bought it, and I took it home and just fell in love with it, read it in one sitting, became completely obsessed by it. My parents, by that point, had sold the farm. They had this house in the woods in this, like, hilly, wooded area, which kind of looked a lot like Prescott University's described in the book, which is where the story takes place. I was an aspiring actor, and I became... I, I'm, I've never told anyone this before, JP. So um, I would take the book that winter, snow on the ground. I would jog up the hill to this wooded clearing area behind my parents' house, and I would act out scenes from the book. Um. I was, you know, I was a tall, thin kid, blonde, curly hair, and I really identified with Billy Sive so much. I loved his his radical... Well, it wasn't really radical. He was... Because he wasn't in your face about it, but I just so fell in love. I would go up and I would act out scenes and, you know, fantasize about, oh my God, if this ever gets made into a movie, I want to play this part. I imagine Gil Gerard from Buck Rogers playing Coach Harlan. <laughs> that whole winter was about that book. I think I reread it three times. Wow. It really did save my life. It kind of replaced that sentence. Well, I'm still a kind of a cynic, but it brought my romanticism back. It gave me hope again. It made me feel like, no, no, there is a way to have an honorable gay life out there. It's not all just sex and drugs and partying and going to bars, which is another thing I identified with Billy because he kind of, you know, was detached from all that. It just, it gave me hope for the future, it recharged my spiritual batteries. Also, I have to say, Harlan Brown is one of the hottest characters. <laughs> I had I, I had a, such a crush on him, which seems crazy to say you have a crush on a fictional character. Oh, that happens all the time yeah. on this podcast. It's a thing. He was an ex-Marine. I remember Billy describing how he was attracted to Coach Brown's hairy thighs. <sighs> <sighs> that was... <laughs> <laughs> but the book is so romantic. It's it's interesting. I reread it last week. And it's it's a hot book, but it's not really sleazy. The sex scenes are very understated, very romantic. I just that's the kind of gay life I wanted. That was the kind of gay romance I was looking for and eventually found, thank God. But yeah, it did save my life because I I was really at a point where I just for the first and only time in my life I felt real shame about being gay. I mean, I wasn't suicidal or anything, but I just had so little hope, mm. so little pride. I'm forever grateful to Miss Warren. What was your relationship like with your family during this? My family, they're so supportive now. But, you know, remember, this was like 1980, 1981. Um, I had a, 
back then, <laughs> before the days of cell phones, you know, I grew up in the country, so my best friend was a toll call, which means, you know, it, per minute charges when you called this person. I came out to him first. His name was Mike Dibble, a great, great friend, and ran up a huge phone bill to the point that when the phone bill came, I intercepted it before my parents got it. So, oh my God, how am I going to pay this off? Uh, finally ended up giving it to my mom. She's like, why did you run up this phone bill? What, what are you talking about? And I said kind of vaguely, well, mom, I, I have something going on in my life. I have to talk to someone about it. And I don't think you would understand. And it was like a light bulb went off over her head. At that time, she was really kind of supportive. We love you. You know, if you want to see a therapist, I said, no, I don't. I didn't think I needed one then. And that was that. It was never mentioned again until I got the boyfriend. That seemed to kind of shift their feelings about my being gay. One day, um, my mom took me to a dentist after school, and we were driving back home after I'd had a root canal. And just out of the blue, she says, well, you know, you'll never accomplish anything as long as you're that way. Mm. And I'm like, God, mom, you can't even say the word. And she said, no, I, I don't want to say the word. And that was that. Once I had the boyfriend and we had a couple of dates and they kind of said something was going on, I got grounded. Why? For your attitude. Well, when do I get ungrounded? When your attitude changes. Well, you know, we can fill in the blanks there. We know what they were talking about. Yeah. Ironically, you know, I, I, I'm from Kokomo, Indiana, which is the town where Ryan White, uh, this was, I don't know how many of your mm -hmm. listeners remember that. He was a uh, young kid who contracted AIDS through a blood transfusion. My mom's sister was actually on a committee to have Ryan White thrown out of school because he was HIV positive. Wow. And that was the thing that kind of shifted my mom's thinking. She was enraged that her sister was involved in that. That prompted my mom and I. By that point, I was living in San Francisco. Ryan White is what prompted my mom to really start talking about it. First about AIDS and then just about being gay. And eventually that led to them being completely open, completely supportive and accepting. They love my husband. I think they like him more than me. <laughs> um, but God love him. My parents are great now. I'm very lucky. Very lucky. Yeah. Ryan was, Ryan's story was so mm -hmm. tragic. In a previous episode, we had Greg Luganis on, who was also talking about his connection to Ryan and how he credits ryan with this bravery that mm -hmm. he didn't even have and here's this four-time you know olympic gold medal winning athlete and obviously we wish that ryan right. didn't go through what he went through and with family to watch them take this extra step to be an activist to harm our community it just feels like an extra mm -hmm. level of betrayal and trauma even I'll never forget that aunt before I moved to San Francisco. She told my mom, I have to talk him out of it. I have to talk him out of moving to San Francisco. If I talk to him and he still moves to San Francisco, at least then I don't have his blood on my hands. <gasps> I was enraged. I called her up. I'm like, how uh, dare you talk to my mom that way? How dare you put that seed in her mind that I'm going to move to San Francisco and die? It was infuriating. That aunt is no longer with us. May she rest in peace. I hope she found some enlightenment in the afterlife. Mm -hmm. That's a very, uh, that's resonating with me. That's very poignant to put it that now way. Now that I've completely depressed your audience. No, 
No, you can imagine on a podcast called This Queer Book Save My Life, we deal with a lot mm. of topics. So please all don't right. feel shy in that regard <laughs> at all. I kind of want to return to this idea of acting out the scenes from the book. Mm. I mean, yes, you are an actor, but I'm always curious about how folks can internalize what's happening in the books and what it's doing for them. So here you are, you've read this book, something's clearly resonating with you. Were there particular scenes that you found yourself drawn to in terms of like acting them out in real life? <laughs> the scene I performed the most. <laughs> performed. There we go, perform. That's uh, the word I'm looking for. There's a scene in the book, Billy's in love with his coach, but he hasn't told him. So Billy starts acting out and there's a scene where they're doing um, yoga on campus and Billy's just not paying attention, not, not doing the, the poses and is acting out and the coach comes up and slaps him across the face. Um, in the book, Harlan describes it as psychic shock, that it's like something that he learned in the military. That scene really got me, you know, I don't know why I acted out that scene a lot. The scene where uh, Billy confessed, well, he didn't really confess because the coach was told by one of his friends. But yeah, the scene where they first come together, I acted that out a lot too. You know, I think it was, I was, I wanted that relationship. I wanted to be in that relationship. I wanted, I wanted a Harlan Brown <laughs> to slap me. No, I wanted a Harlan Brown for my own. I wanted um, a passionate love that was all consuming as this book, you know, the love in this book. It's, oh gosh, it's so romantic. <laughs> I just um, feel like I'm gushing about it. Did you read the sequels? You know, I've, I've not read any of the sequels because... Uh, oh, really? Yeah, because and I'm kind of glad the movie never got made. There was a lot of talk in the 80s, like, oh, Paul mm -hmm. Newman's going to do it. Oh, mm -hmm. they've got to make this movie. And at that time, I'm like, oh, yes, I, oh my God, wouldn't it be a great movie? Now, I'm really glad they never made the movie for the same reason I've never read the sequels, because to me... It's a perfect story. I don't want to know what happens afterwards to the characters. Mm -hmm. um, there's no way a film could match the intensity or the power of the book. I'm sure Paul Newman could have made a really good movie if he found the financing, but it could not have been as honest. Mm -hmm. Hollywood was not ready to do an out gay love story. I, maybe they still aren't. I mean, Brokeback Mountain was kind of the exception. I know that in the sequel, they... You know, it's about raising Billy's kid. And I did, you know, that was one thing that bugged me at the end of The Front Runner. It, uh, how do I say this without spoilers? Um, uh, Harlan Brown, the coach, eventually. Well, we can say right here that we're going to have a spoiler okay. right now. So if you don't want to know, you can just fast forward <laughs> in a little bit of time and you won't get a spoiler alert. So go Okay, ahead. spoiler alert. So yeah, turn it off if you don't want to know. The book ends with Billy being assassinated while he's um, competing at the Olympics. It is one of the most powerful endings I've ever read in a book. In fact, the first time I read it, I remember I got to that point and it was so shocking. I actually went back and reread the chapter before that. It was almost as though I was hoping that there would be a different ending. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like if I go back and, and start mm -hmm. the ending over, maybe he won't get shot. Maybe they'll live happily ever after. At the end, like the last chapter, it's kind of intimated that um, Harlan and their mutual friend Vince, 
who had a crush on Harlan become sexually involved. Um, I don't know in the sequels, maybe they had a relationship. One of the reasons I didn't want to read the sequels, I don't want to know. I just want to celebrate mm-hmm. this one love story that was just so perfect in every way. For folks who have fast forward, we're still <laughs> going to be having some spoilers, so keep yeah. going. Uh, but I'm curious, given how the novel ends, I could see how that could be triggering, but you were finding it as part of this love story and was healing? Yeah. Well, because, you know, he didn't die of AIDS at the end. You True. know, he didn't commit suicide, which was, you know, kind of the tropes of the time. The gay character has to die mm-hmm. at the end one way or the other or go straight. Mm-hmm. I mean, as shocking as that ending is and as sad, I mean, it's, it, it really is a gut punch. It didn't depress me. I mean, it was sad, but I mean, it, it, it was still a celebration of their love. And I have to say, I reread it last week. And um, the couple chapters after the assassination, I think, are some of the most honest, realistic portrayals of grief that um, Coach Brown's not able to cry for months. He kind of compartmentalizes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that's kind of what I did. I was able to kind of just, that happened, put that in a box and lock it away. Um, that's kind of how I dealt with that summer for the longest time. As, as traumatic as Billy's death is in the book, he died a proud, out gay man. For folks who've been skipping ahead to avoid the spoilers, welcome back. <laughs> I have a question, Leon, that kind of moves us into the future. Right. How did the front runner inspire what came next for you? This is a love story. As you were becoming a writer yourself, did you find this novel having any influences of how you're approaching your own writing? How did it influence my writing? I admire her writing style. I really like concise, simple, you know, non-flowery. I'm not a fan of purple prose, let's put it that way. And, (laughs) And I really admire, and I hadn't thought about it that it influenced my own writing, but I think it did because rereading it last week, it's like, oh my God. She writes exactly how I, I, my goal is to be able to write like that. Just very straightforward, descriptive, but not flowery. Maybe I should read the sequels because I do love how she writes. It's, um, you can't put it down. I don't know what it is, but you just have to get through it. It propels you through the story. It's, it's, there aren't cliffhangers or anything, but you just, you have to know what happens next. It's a pa- page turner, as I used to call them. Yeah. You won't put it down. Pick it up, and I, 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 I defy anyone to read this book and be able to like put it down and not finish it. Here is an audio clip from Leon's recent book, Expletives Not Deleted, from the chapter titled 10 Reasons to Embrace Aging Gaily. The clip starts with reason number six. Number six, friends become family. You learn the true meaning of family, a group of people who love you, warts and all. You don't have to be uncomfortable, keep secrets, or hide your authentic self from this new family. Number seven, speaking of friends, when you go to bars now, it's to celebrate with friends, not to look for sex. Ironically, not looking for sex makes you even more desirable. Number eight, you no longer tolerate toxic friendships. You recognize people who enhance your life and eliminate those who don't. Number nine, You learn not to beat yourself up about mistakes you've made in life. Instead, you look for the lessons, vow not to make the same mistakes twice, and then keep going. Number 10. Most importantly, we survived AIDS. We've lived long enough to see gay marriage become a reality. 
Those are reasons enough to celebrate, especially since a lot of our peers weren't so lucky. Much like coming out, there's nothing to lose and everything to be gained by embracing your age. So stop complaining about the cold wind and the shorter days, pull on a heavy sweater, have a pumpkin latte, and enjoy your autumn. You can purchase both of Leon's books at our bookstore, bookshop.org slash shop slash thisqueerbook. Links in the show notes and on our website. The audiobook of Expletives Not Deleted will be out this spring. Follow Leon on social or on his website for details. You can watch Old Dogs and New Tricks on Amazon Prime Video. Leon told me he is working on a new book project with the working title Axes to Grind. It's all about temp jobs and lousy bosses and juggling it all while pursuing a life in the arts. He is at Leon Acord on Instagram and threads. That's at L-E-O-N-A-C-O-R-D. On Facebook, he is Leon Acord Actor. His website is leonacord.com. And up next, a special conversation with our executive producer, Jim Pounds. Hey everyone, we have something very special and unique that we don't always do for each episode. And there's a couple things that we want to share with you. One, the GLAAD Media Award nomination that happened last week. We wanted to chat about that for a little bit, you know, have a humble brag, I guess. But so joining me here is our executive producer, Jim Pounds. I guess also GLAAD Media Award nominee, executive producer, Jim Pounds. So hi, Jim. What do you think about all this? Hi, GLAAD nominee host, J.P. DeBrosian. <laughs> um, I think... Um, it, there's, it's surreal. I have great affection for the GLAAD Awards. I was mm-hmm. always proud or pleased whenever they came out and whatever the categories were, and I haven't followed it that closely, but I always paid attention to it. It's, it's a, an institution that's now 35 years old that I respect. And so it is odd to see our name there. <laughs> and, and yet, I've always felt like we're doing something unique. That doesn't mean anybody recognizes it or, or cares, but I think it, we do stand out a little bit. We are trying to do something not like most people, in, even in the podcasting or in the LGBT podcasting space. So I, I thought it would happen someday, but just not last Wednesday. Right. And I was looking at it this weekend. Apparently, this is only the second year that they've had the Outstanding Podcast category. So that's that surprised. also makes it a little bit special, yeah. right? That surprises to, me, though. I just would have thought it had been longer than that. Well, I mean, yeah, podcasts have been around forever. But I guess, you know, it takes, you know, a long time to pitch a category and then go through all of the internal whatnot to get the category well, actually a thing. And they have 30 English language categories and 18 Spanish language. So they, there may be resistance to putting any more Another apples category. in that basket. But Well, there's uh, like 310 nominees. Yeah. It's just so surreal that we're one of them. Well, congratulations. I well, Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, the ceremonies are in March and in May. And we don't know if we're going to get to go to them yet. They, they Even with two ceremonies, they don't present all of the awards in person. So we're going to wait to see if the podcast category will be part of the L.A. one in March or part of the New York one in uh, May. Hopefully they will be because that would just be 
so amazing. I'm not expecting at all. I know people are supposed to be like, you know, humble, you know, when you get nominated for something like, oh, you know, I'm not expecting to win. I'm literally not expecting to win. But I really, really, really want to go to that ceremony because I think it would just be so surreal and special. And, you know, maybe the only time that we get to do that, you know, maybe not. But I just, I also want to thank Glad. We really believe in this show and we really believe in fighting back against the book bans and holding up these books. And so it, it does mean something more on a, you know, beyond the personal level. You know, we put a lot of work into this show, but to have Glad recognize it. And I think for me, the recognition is more so that these books need to be read, that these guests need to be listened to, that these authors need to be followed. And I hope then with this nomination that we're able to do more of that because, you know, we are facing what we expect to be another, you know, record-breaking year of LGBTQ book bans or attempts to ban LGBTQ books this year. So thank you, Glad Media Awards. Uh, I really do believe, I guess, that the nomination is the win, but... (laughs) I don't know. I think you're right. I think watching you get ready for a day and a half would be exhausting, you know, to getting your outfit right and your oh, can you hair right. No, I really can't. Yeah. So it's maybe, we'll see. To have that opportunity to, though, I know. would be so special. I know. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to talk with you about today, so you, we just had Leon Acord and his conversation with me about The Front Runner. And when Leon reached out to us and said this was the book that saved his life, and you had a reaction to that. Well, I I always said, if we ever, you know, in 2090, when we run out of guests, if if I need to do a episode, that I would choose the front runner. That I that was the book that the way I'm interpreting the question, that's how I would answer it. So then when Leon came along and said, I want to do the front runner, I thought, all right, well then I don't need to worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have to reread it. I don't have to get ready for an interview, but I thought I would at least, um, you know, get on his shoulders and say, I agree. And, and, uh, I don't know if there's any specific questions you want to ask me, but, but we're similar in age. I think I'm six well, years is, older than Leon. This so. is unique because we, we don't usually do commentary on no, episodes, right. right? Because that's not our, our deal here. But given the, the situation, I'm just curious, you know, you listen to the, you listen to the interview. So what were your kind of your takeaways from this conversation with Leon? Well, I think, um, the most important thing anybody can understand about the 70s, the early 70s, is that there was so little representation. There was no positive representation. And we sort of craved, and I could hear it in Leon's episode, any <laughs> character, any even nod, even inference that somebody might be gay or lesbian it was it was so under the radar so and when it did come forward it was usually in some sort of tragic way or in, in a sad way or or a clown sort of goofy way and here was a romance i mean how many ro- how many heterosexual romance paperbacks have been written good night and uh well, that's thousands time. yeah it was it was such a common it's a trope really was the bare-chested man on the front of the with the woman in a flowing gown so here was our first at least that i'm aware of romance and that's the word that leon used a lot is how romantic it was and that was 
And we didn't even question, well, who's Patricia Nell Warren and what's her deal? There was no such thing. It was like, oh my gosh, there's this story about, you know, what I thought of as a college, an adult college student and his coach and that became a romantic story. And that was about all, we had very low standards then, <laughs> you know, we, we were just glad that somebody did something, somebody, uh, it seemed out of the shadows. So now I have all kinds of other thoughts about it over time, but at the time it was groundbreaking, at least in my suburban Los Angeles world. How did you find it? I saw it in a bookstore or, or no, in a department store, in a book department. And I, I saw the cover and although there's nothing overt about it, it's certainly uh, sexy, I guess I'd say. And I then I think I went and asked people and I started hearing about it from people and eventually bought a copy in that, in that department store, which was called Nash's, I think was the name of it in Arcadia, California. And the things that stand out for me are the intergenerational nature of it, which, which, is also uh, for some people verboten. It's not for me. I've always been interested in intergenerational relationships. So that was unexpected. Considering we are in one. <laughs> Considering we are in one. Also the fact that this was um, a romance and not a, you know, sex in the park sort of, or sex in the men's room sort of story. Um, those two things were, oh, and it was set in sports. You know, think mm -hmm. of think of the places you're not in the 70s going to hear a gay story. This person was an interior decorator or a hairstylist. You know, this these were two athletes or an athlete and a coach. So it was, it was like the military or the clergy. Now we know both of those institutions are crawling with gay people and lesbians. But at the time in the 70s, that was almost unthinkable. So it was a very unusual setting intergenerational dynamic and a romance. So it had like three big home runs associated with it. And it, it solidified some things for me when I wasn't so comfortable going to bars or, or thinking that I was going to meet somebody, you know, in a porn movie theater that would be a partner. <laughs> this sort of validated the idea of romance also being part of a gay relationship, which was not necessarily thought to be true, at least it was not obviously true in the early 70s. So it really set a path for me that I was already on, but it validated the path I was already on. And I feel like Leon did the same thing. He's, he's like, I wanted Coach, what's his name? You know, I wanted exactly that relationship that she wrote so, so sensitively, I think. Now we come to find out Patricia Nell Warren was in fact bisexual or she has come, she had come out as bisexual while she was still alive. So, which makes it all make more sense than ex straight woman writing a story in a sort of fantasy way. Mm -hmm. So uh, I feel even better about it than I did uh, back in the day. We were just watching an episode of Sort of, which I highly recommend on HBO. It's a it's from Canada, but it's this amazing uh, show of of queer BIPOC 
uh, characters, but they had a conversation, which I really appreciated about agency because there was this like power dynamic between two characters and there was an age difference between these two characters. Not a big one, uh, but I really appreciated how they were, you know, both of them were trying to demonstrate, you know, sensitivity to their power relationship, but also to agency and how both of them did have agency and choice in the situation. And one person shouldn't be, you know, like rendered, um, you know, powerless or victimized and so i think what i've gotten from the conversation with you about the front runner and with leon right is that it's really also sensitively addressing that intergenerational relationship and agency and who has that and you know he's a he's a track star but immediately like when he graduates billy the the younger partner becomes a teacher and takes up a teaching position and so they're colleagues right in that way even though there is still right that that age dynamic and then obviously that dynamic of becoming you know coach and athlete and trying to make it to the olympics the 1976 olympics which also kind of i mean it's not the same obviously because with like niad the film that came out last year with you know jody foster and annette benning you know there was that you know coach uh um athlete you know relationship but they were trying to navigate it from like colleagues of the same age right and how do they how do they you know be a coach and a and an athlete while having to navigate this other relationship that they had for many many decades prior to that and so i just i guess where i'm also going with that is to your point to see how they were also navigating the coach athlete dynamic within this very homophobic institution uh, this is track and field, but all of these sports, right, are very, very homophobic and that culture is. And so, so early on to have a book that's the first one that's mainstreaming queer romance, but also directly trying to address in a very dramatic way, not a melodramatic way. Um, and I know we, we gave, you know, I, I'm not going to do any more spoiler alerts here, but it was very interesting to me of how clearly uh, Patricia Nell Warren was going after that as an institution mm-hmm. uh, and how that homophobia is internalized mm-hmm. and system- systematic in that area. Well, and wasn't 1976 Greg Louganis' first Olympics or am I wrong about that? 72 maybe. Anyway, I, was I think it was say, later was, than that. Was it? Okay. I think he was 80, 84 and 88 oh, or no, which was the one, there was one that we, like we didn't go to, <laughs> right? Was it the one that Jimmy Carter said we weren't going to? Yes. Or was it Reagan that said we weren't going yes. to? Was that 76 or 80? That might have been 76. Okay. You're right. You're right. Okay. Yeah. Well, thanks, everybody, for letting me share my no, little slice you. of uh, my past. But yeah. Enjoy the front runner. I think it's still, I don't know, whether what did you find out about it? It is, is in it paperback. Paper? Our, we, we can't stock it in our bookstore because Bookshop uh, doesn't have access to the title. Uh-huh. Um, and the audio CD is actually on back order, which I, obviously, like, who has CD players anymore? But you can find it at your local bookstores. You can also find it at the major retailers. If you, you know, have to do that, I understand. Uh, but you can find it at local bookstores. So we really recommend that you check it out. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. We're going to close it out here, run some credits. We will see you next week for a new episode of The Gailey Show. And then in two weeks, we'll be back with a new episode of This Queer Book Saved My Life. That's our show for today. Our podcast is executive produced by Jim Pounds, accounting and creative support provided by Gordy Erickson. Our associate producers are Archie Arnold, Natalie Cruz, Jonathan Freed, Paul Kafer, Nicole Olilla, Joe Perrazzo, Bill Shea, and Sean Smith. Our Patreon subscribers are Stephen D., Stephen Flam, Ida Goatberg, Thomas McNutt, and Gary Nygaard. 
a reminder to listen to The Gailey Show, which I host every Saturday at 2 p.m. on AM 950 in the Twin Cities of Minnesota. You can also listen live through the TuneIn app, or you can find it everywhere you stream your podcast, and you can watch my very pretty face on YouTube. Search for The Gailey Show. Permission to use audio clips from the audiobook expletives not deleted, provided by Leon Acord. Our soundtrack and sound effects are provided through royalty-free licenses. Please visit thisqueerbook.com slash music for track names and artists. We are on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Blue Sky, or on Instagram. As always, you can connect with us through our website, thisqueerbook.com. And if you want to be on the show, fill out the form on the homepage. And until our next episode, see you queers and allies in the bookstores. <laughs>